to RUF. Uh, my name is Matt Terrell. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 13. We are racing right through the book of John. Last semester, all semester, we, were looking at, we looked at the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John. And what we saw that John was doing is he was setting up Jesus, showing us that Jesus answers and fulfills all of our life's deepest questions. That our life really, really can't find true worth and meaning um, until we find ourselves connected to Jesus. And that's really John's point in the first half of his gospel. Is he's showing us Jesus is God. He is life itself. And in the second half of John's gospel, he takes a little bit of a different focus. He shifts gears and he zooms in on Jesus' final hours. He zooms in on Jesus' final hours. In fact, in the passage we're going to read tonight... Jesus is less than 24 hours from going to the cross. It's his last night before his death, and he's preparing his disciples. And what's common, commonly called the, uh, the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse, where Jesus is, he eats the last supper with his disciples, he prays with them, he speaks to them, and he's preparing them for his departure, for what life will be like after he is gone. And really what he's doing over the next few chapters, and what we're going to look at in the coming weeks is he's saying, look, these are the things that you cannot live without. That after I leave you, these are the things that you must know. These are the things that you cannot live without. And tonight, in this particular passage, what Jesus is showing us is that one of the things that you cannot live without is scandalous love. That's kind of a provocative phrase. We'll unpack that in a minute. But one of the things that we can't live without is scandalous love. Now, John 13, it's familiar to many of us. This is the passage where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Now, we read this passage and we often kind of romanticize it and sentimentalize it. Um, I've been in weddings before where the groom washes the bride's feet and the bride washes the groom's feet, right? Like, this is kind of what we think of. I'm one of those people, by the way. Um, I washed my, my wife's feet uh, when I proposed to her many, many, many years ago. Um, and so I'm one of those people that kind of romanticize and sentimentalize this passage. But... To the original readers, to the original hearers of this passage, to, the, to his disciples who were experiencing him, washing, them, washing his feet, it was not romantic. It was not sentimental. It was scandalous. It was shameful. It was, it was embarrassing. It was awkward. It was... So this passage should actually unsettle us a little bit. It should actually undo us and, and maybe even make us afraid. Let's look together. At John chapter 13. This is God's word. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And then he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. 
And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word and not mine. So let's pray and ask for his help as we look at it tonight. Lord, we do thank you for your word that you would tell us something about yourself. We thank you that you would tell us this about yourself. That you are the kind of God who washes people's feet. And I ask, Lord, as we look at this passage tonight, that you you would open our ears. Give us ears to hear it. Would you soften our hearts? And you, Holy Spirit, would you come and do what only you can do? And would you bring the dead to life? Would you sanctify us? It's in Jesus that we pray. Amen. So there's two things I want to pull out, tease out from this passage this evening. And the first is that this scandalous love of Jesus cleanses us. The scandalous love of Jesus cleanses us. Now, okay, we've got, we've got to unpack Why do I keep saying scandalous love? Why is this love so scandalous? There's two particular reasons, I think, why this love of Jesus is so scandalous. And the first is a theological reason. The theological reason is that for 12 chapters, John has been telling us that Jesus is God in the flesh. That he is full of authority and full of power. Like in John chapter 1... John begins, he kicks off his gospel by saying, Jesus is the eternal word of God taken on flesh. He is very God in human form. He is fully God and fully man. And so for 12 chapters, John is kind of unpacking that idea. What does it look like when God wears sandals? What does it look like when God takes on flesh and walks around on the earth? And one of the things that he's showing us over and over again is that Jesus has authority and power over everything. He has authority and power over creation. He has authority and power over nature, over demons, over Satan, over disease, and over sickness, over sin, and over death. That he is, in fact, God in the flesh. That this is who Jesus is. So... You come to John chapter 13, you hear 12 chapters of how Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate. You hear 12 chapters, and then Jesus does this. And it should give us whiplash. Because here is God, the God of everything, stripping down and taking the form of a slave and doing a slave's task. Do you realize that um, Jewish slave owners, Jewish masters would not let their Jewish slaves wash their feet. It was that menial of a task. It was actually against Jewish law to let your Jewish slave wash your feet. You had to have your Gentile slaves do it. 
It was that menial. It was that dirty. I mean, just think about it, right? Like, this is ancient society. There's no pavement. It's an agrarian society. So you have animals walking up and down the streets all the time. And you guys know what kind of a mess animals make. And you're walking around in sandals in the same streets that those animals are walking around in. And your feet get nasty. We don't have to get too graphic about this, right? You got some nasty stuff on your feet. It was a dirty job. It was a menial job. It it was inappropriate for Jesus to do this. It was borderline shameful. It was beneath him. It was undignifying. How can the God of the universe in flesh do this? How can he do this? So it's scandalous for theological reasons, but it's also scandalous for practical reasons. Here's what I mean. This isn't how the world is supposed to work. This isn't how the world is supposed to work. The disciples, um, they have been following Jesus for several years. They've been following his ministry and they've kind of attached themselves to his rising star. And they've finally entered into Jerusalem and they think this is the moment that we've been waiting for. Jesus is about to rise to power. He's going to overthrow the Roman governor. He is going to assume the throne in Israel. He's going to you know, cast off all of our enemies. Like This is the moment that we've been waiting for. Jesus is going to be our political hero. He is going to assume power. He's going to rise in influence and prestige and respect and authority. In fact, in Luke's gospel, he tells us that right before this moment, right before they share the Last Supper together, the disciples are actually arguing about who is going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. That when Jesus rises to power and they think this is about to happen and they're arguing, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to have the greatest reputation? Who is going to command the most respect? Who is going to be the greatest when Jesus rises to power? This is is what they think. This is the way the world works. The world is saved by putting the right people in power. This is how the world is saved. This is how the world works, right? This is the conversation we're having as a nation right now. If you've been following the political debates, it really doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. That we think our our nation is built on this idea that we can save the world if we get the right person in power. We can save the world. The right Supreme Court justice will be nominated. The right laws will be passed. The right laws will not be passed. Like we can save the world if the right person comes to power. And Jesus is saying, That's the way you want the world to work, and it's actually not the way the world works. Because when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he's saying, look, the world is not going to be saved by grabbing power. The world is going to be saved by giving it up. It's not going to be saved by putting the right person in power. It's it's not going to be saved by Jesus becoming this influential, great, powerful person. It's going to be saved by Jesus giving up power giving up influence, giving up credibility and reputation and privilege. It's going to be saved by giving up power. Now, there's a way in our culture to give up power in a way that is kind of altruistic and that will be applauded and that will get you praise. Um, A number of years ago, Prince William in England, he served on the board of this organization that um, was focused on serving the homeless and the poor in London. And so in order to get a better understanding of the plight of the poor in London, he actually spent a night in the middle of winter on the streets in London. Now, he did this in secret. He didn't, it was not publicized. He did ask some advisors about it, and they told him, no, don't do this. This is a bad idea. This is dangerous. You're second in line to the throne. Why would you spend a night on the streets in London? But he went and did it anyway. And it was a good experience. He was fine. Obviously, Prince William is alive and has children, and everything went fine. 
But some people on the front end were kind of like, hey, don't do this. This is a bad idea. But afterwards, he got a lot of really positive publicity. Oh, he's so humble. He totally gets it. Like, he's such a relatable prince. Um, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He gets it. And everybody's kind of patting him on the back. But listen, nobody's patting Jesus on the back here. Nobody's patting Jesus on the back. In fact, Peter is incredulous. He is incensed. What are you doing, Jesus? What are, he's like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? This is not the way the world is supposed to work. This is shameful. This is offensive. You, of all people, are not supposed to do this kind of stuff. It's too low. It's too menial. It's too inappropriate. You, Jesus, are supposed to be rising to power, not stooping lower than a slave. What are you doing? And Jesus says, Peter, that's precisely the point. Because if I don't stoop this low, unless I do this, you have no part with me. Unless I do this, you cannot be with me. Unless I get dirty, you cannot be cleaned. See, if you want to be with someone who is important, you have to be cleaned. You have to go through a cleansing process. If you want to go meet the President of the United States, you're going to have to have background checks. You're going to have to go through metal detectors. You're going to have to be patted down. You're going to have to empty out your pockets, right? Like you're going to have to go through a cleansing process in order to be in the presence of the president of the United States. And the same is true of God. If you want to be in God's presence, if you want to be with him, you've got to be cleansed. You've got to be cleansed. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, well, that seems kind of hoity-toity of Jesus, right? Like, I thought Jesus was supposed to be gracious and inclusive and and loving. And so why do I need to be cleansed? Do I really, is that that really necessary? Do I really need to be cleansed? But let's be honest, okay? You came to college to be cleansed. You came to college to be cleansed. You, You came to college to start over. There was something about your past that you didn't like. There was something about your family or your reputation. You came to make a new name for yourself, to make a new identity for yourself. To be, you know, your your college version of yourself is going to be funnier and more popular and more mature and more spiritual and happier and more accomplished and more well-respected. Like you came to college to, to be cleansed, to start over. College, in many ways, is a self cleansing project. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to be somebody. I'm going to remake myself. So here's the question. How's it going? How is the self-cleansing project going? Is it working? Like, are you the person that you dreamed that you would be this far along into your college career? Have you, have you met your high demands and your high expectations for yourself? My guess is if you're being really honest with yourself, you're answering no. Because <laughs> that's what I have to answer for myself. And the reason is because we can't cleanse ourselves. That, that dirty things can't clean dirty things. Like this is just a basic fact of life. This is how things are clean. Dirty things can't clean themselves. Brian Sorgenfry, who is Tim, our intern, one of our interns, his former campus minister at Mississippi State with RUF, he tells a story about one of his daughters. Um, he has how many daughters does he have? He has two daughters. So one of his daughters, I don't know which one, that's probably for her protection. Um, she had a dirty diaper one day and she decided that she was going to try to clean herself up. She was going to impress mommy and daddy and she was going to clean herself up. 
And so they walk into her bedroom and she is so proud of herself. Mommy, daddy, I, I had a dirty diaper. I'm trying to clean myself up. You don't need to worry about it. And there's poop everywhere. She's got it all over herself, all over her clothes. It's in her hair. It's on the furniture. It's on the walls. Listen, dirty things can't clean themselves. The only way for something dirty to get clean is for something clean to get dirty. That's the only way. We do this every night with our kids in the bath. We fill a bathtub with clean water and we put our dirty kids in it. And somehow at the end of that process, after much fighting and much splashing, our children end up clean and that water is filthy. It's dirty. And my daughter thinks it's a fun game to pick up a bath toy and fill it with water and try to drink the dirty water and freak out mommy and daddy, right? You do this every day in the calf. You go into the calf and you get a delicious plate of food or maybe a mediocre plate of food and, and you get some of it on your cheek. And so you reach for a napkin and you take that clean napkin and you put it on your dirty face. And all of a sudden, your face is clean and the napkin is dirty. The only way for something that's dirty to get clean is for something clean to get dirty. And Jesus is saying, look, you can't cleanse yourself but I can. I am the only thing that is clean enough to take on your dirt. You see, Jesus knows that he is going to the cross where he is going to take the dirt of sin onto himself and he is going to give us his cleanliness. The language that the Bible uses for that is his righteousness. And he's going to take our dirt and give us his cleanliness, that he is going to be stained with sin, that he is going to be condemned, that he is going to be cursed. He is going to be estranged from God, that he is going to drink down the cup of God's wrath so that his children will never have to experience any of that. So that they instead can be blessed, can be beloved, can be embraced as daughters and as sons. And Jesus is saying, look, I know this is hard to understand. I know it is. So I'm going to help you understand it. And I'm going to stoop down. And I'm going to take on the task and the form of a slave. And I'm going to wipe out the mess from between your toes because you can't get clean until I get dirty. You can't. But it's also that Jesus is, this is the only way for him to actually show us how deeply and how profoundly he loves his children. Right at the very beginning of this passage, in verse 1, very end of verse 1, it says that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Literally, in the Greek, it means he loved them until it was finished. And the word that is used there is the same word that Jesus cries out on the cross when he says, it is finished. It is done. Now what is it that Jesus has finished? Verse 10 tells us, he's speaking to Peter, he's speaking to the disciples, and he's saying, you are clean. That's what he's finished. And he loved you and I until it was done. Until we were clean. Now, I know for many of you, because I feel this way often, that I, you know, I kind of pay lip service to that idea. I know I'm clean. I know that I'm united to Jesus and his righteousness, and, but I don't feel that way. I don't feel clean. But let me just tell you, it, if you have put your faith in Jesus, that is the truest thing about you. You are clean. All the things that you wish you had not done, all the things that you can't stop doing now, all the things that you will do in the future, they are gone. 
You're clean. You're clean. This is what the scandalous love of Jesus does. It cleanses. But the second thing that the scandalous love of Jesus does is it calls us. It cleanses us and it calls us. It beckons us out of one way of life and into another way of life. And and let me just be honest. This is where this passage gets really uncomfortable uh, and a little bit frightening. Because Jesus in verse 12, he speaks to the disciples. He says, listen, do you understand? Do you understand what I have done to you? And then in verses 14 and 15, he says, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, do you understand what I've done? I have stooped this low in order to love you. And now I want you to stoop that low in order to love others. I have done this for you, and now I'm asking you, I'm calling you to do this for others. Now, again, we are prone to kind of visionary and romantic versions of what Jesus is talking about here. That we think, we hear Jesus saying like, I want you to go and wash other people's feet. And and we get big dreams about what that could be. I I am a, a big offender here. I have big dreams. I have big dreams for RUF. I have big dreams for RUF's impact in your life. RUF's impact, RUF's impact on this campus and on the kingdom all over the world. Like, and I have big and often selfish dreams about my own ministry and what maybe I could accomplish and what other people would think about me if I did accomplish those things. Like, I have big visions and big dreams for what it might look like for me to go wash other people's feet. And you do too. That's why you came to Sanford. You came to Sanford because you have big dreams to grow in your faith, to be challenged, to have opportunities to serve the kingdom while you're in college and like on summer internships around the globe. And it's why you came. You have big dreams for how God might use you in the future to impact poverty and racism and disease and oppression and spiritual darkness, both at home and abroad. And you have big dreams. But that probably is not what foot washing looks like for most people in this room. That probably is not what foot washing looks like for most people in this room. C.S. Lewis, as always, cuts to the heart. Listen to what he says. He says, It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Here's what Lewis is saying. It's really easy to be a visionary. It's really hard to love people. Really hard. I have a friend who's a campus minister out on the West Coast, and he says this. He says, following Jesus in the way of foot washing means dying to our dream life so that we may enter into the nightmares of others. It means dying to our dream life so that we may enter into the nightmares of others. That is terrifying. It's terrifying. And the truth of the matter is, you don't have to go halfway around the globe to do that. You have nightmares in your own life. You have your own, and everybody has their own nightmares. You have them, your siblings have them, your parents have them, your roommates have them, your hallmates have them, your professors have them, your classmates have them. 
There's abuse and divorce and addiction and depression and anxiety and fear and doubt and loneliness. There are people stuck in poverty. There are people stuck in sin. Nightmares. All over this city, all over this campus, all over this room. You don't have to go far to enter into someone else's nightmare. Let's, let's get practical for just a second. What would it look like to be a friend to the people that you consider to be beneath you? What would it look like to be their friend? What would it look like to be a friend to the people that you just plain don't have time for? That, you, you, that they can't give you anything in return, even if the thing that they give you in return is just a, a nice, satisfied, altruistic feeling that I did something good today. What if they can't even give you that? What would it look like to love messy people in a costly way? Because it will cost you. It could cost you your grades. It could cost you your friends. It could cost you a job or a reputation or your dreams. It, it might cost you your very life. It is costly. See, this is not, this is not sentimental. This is not romantic. This is terrifying. This is terrifying. Are you afraid? I am. I am often afraid of what Jesus might ask me to do. But here's the good news. Jesus was too. Luke chapter 22. Right after he gets done eating this meal and washing the feet of his disciples, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he's afraid. He pleads with God. Is there any other way? I do not want to do what you are about to ask me to do. I will do it, but I don't want to. Is there any other way? And there wasn't. There was no other way. And he went. And the reason that he went is because he loved us until it was finished. He loved us until it was done, until you were clean. That, that and that alone, this vision of Jesus Seeing and savoring Jesus, loving us to the end, that is the thing that will drive out our fear. That's the only thing that can do it. John, in a different book, in 1 John, says, perfect love casts out fear. Now, that's not our perfect love for God that casts out our fear. That's God's perfect love for us that casts out our fear. That's the only thing. That's the only thing is seeing and savoring Jesus, loving us to the end that will cast out our fear. He doesn't promise us comfort. He doesn't promise us fulfillment of our dreams. He doesn't promise us anything except this. You are clean. And you are loved. You are clean and you are loved. And I will be with you and love you to the end. And that is more than enough. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, that is good news. It's hard news, but it's good news. That you got dirty so that we could be clean.